to Look Ahead 2018, a series of podcasts by the National Institute of Economic and Social Research, NISA, discussing the events, trends and processes to watch out for in the coming year. I am Paola Bonadonna. Today I'm joined by NISA's Associate Research Director, Dr. Monique Bell, to discuss the trade-offs Britain will have to face this coming year in its attempt to negotiate a new relationship with the EU. So, Monique, we are finally moving on to trade talks, and everyone is talking about uh, Canada Plus. Plus, what is this? (laughs) Well, people are talking about Canada Plus Plus and Norway Minus Minus. That's coming from a speech uh, made by Michel Barnier um, a few weeks ago in Brussels, and I happened to be in the room when he made that speech. And he set out quite clearly that the two options that the Commission sees as viable are either a Canada-style trade agreement or single market membership. Now, that is actually a very coherent position on the part of the Commission. Remind us what a Canada-style trade agreement might look like. What are we talking about? Well, a Canada-style trade agreement would offer really good market access for goods, Mm -hmm. right? It would, however, fall short of customs union, Mm -hmm. right? That's potentially a big issue for some of our industries like automotive that rely on integrated supply chains, but it has almost nothing on services. The only provision, the only real way, meaningful way that the CETA agreement goes beyond um, standard trade agreements is that it does open up public procurement um, in each country to the other's um, firms. But that's probably pretty small beer, mm-hmm. yeah. And on the other side, um, uh, Norway minus minus. <laughs> what is that? Well, what Norway minus minus is is a little hard to to decipher at this stage. But Norway is simply single market membership, right? And that would imply the four freedoms, which the Commission seems to see as. Um, for freedoms that need to stay together. Mm -hmm. So if we want freedom for goods, freedom of movement for goods and services and capital, then labour needs to be in that mix as well. So the logic of comparative advantage, the logic that the EU sells more goods to us than we to them and we sell more services to them, means really that the coherent position for the rest of the EU is to go for a Canada-style agreement that gives them what they want. And In many ways, economically, the coherent position for us is to go for single market membership. But then being in the single market, but having left the EU would leave us in really a weaker position than we were before in the sense that we would still be able to benefit from the single market, from the four freedoms, but we would have to be rule takers. We would no longer have a say in what those rules look like. And you know, this is, this is potentially quite a loss. We'd have to accept freedom of movement. We'd have to accept whatever future standards the EU decides on without really having a meaningful voice in them. So, for example, driverless cars, right? Driverless cars are on the horizon. And next up on the regulatory agenda is how do we regulate them? Now, of course... Our automotive firms would want to have some say in how that happens. Now, for some firms producing in the UK that are owned by um, other European 
have other European parent countries, they will be looked after by their parent companies. But for our own UK domiciled firms like Land Rover, you know, they're going to have to be relying on maybe their subsidiaries abroad um, to have their voice. And I mean, the question is, do we really want to depend on, say, Slovakia to be our voice in the future of driverless cars? Right. That's a that's a pretty difficult question, I think. But why do we necessarily want a voice in in EU standards? Couldn't we try and come up with our own completely different set of standards and influence, say, US standards? Well, it is true that right now the two leading sets of standards are the EU and the US. But the UK's geographic position right on the doorstep of the EU first of all means that we are much more likely to be doing more of our trade with the EU, and indeed historically the EU as a whole has been a much more important trading partner than the US, particularly for goods, but to some extent for services as well. And the EU is just a bigger market, right? Mm. That's 500 million consumers and is quite, which versus the 300 million in the US, and the EU is still a pretty rich place. It might be an obvious question, but remind us why it is important to have common standards with the people that you're trading with. Sure. Well, it's a very basic part of market access, right? If we allow other countries to export their goods to us, we want to be assured that those goods are safe, right? If we allow other countries to um, export services to us, We also want to make sure, we in the UK want to understand that if we employ an architect from Estonia, that that architect is trained to the same standards as UK architects are and will build safe buildings, or that civil engineers from the rest of Europe will build safe roads and bridges and tunnels. That's just a very basic thing. And so, of course, it's quite reasonable for um, countries to, to whose markets we want access to ask that we also obey the same standards. And the, so the magic of the EU was that across the EU 28, we agreed on a common set of standards that really made trade re- seamless and easy, and we could depend on our trading partners obeying the same rules as we do. And in fact, what a lot of companies are, are, are coming up with now, having complained about bureaucracy and excessive rules from Brussels, etc., is that they now seem to be worried about the fact that they, they now have complied with all those standards. They don't want those standards to change because that will be an extra cost for them, right? Sure. And there again, we come back to the issue that the EU is one of the leading standard setters mm-hmm. in the world. And in that sense... And it's probably not a bad bad set of standards to be adhering to. But what about trying to um, expand our trade uh, towards emerging markets? Surely the UK wants to increase trade with them. Sure. And look, emerging markets are are indeed going to be increasingly important. The first thing is that there's no problem in exporting goods that meet EU standards to emerging markets. Right. If anything, our standards are, in most areas, probably higher. So that's not an issue. The difficulty when we start opening up unilaterally, as many proponents of, um, of leaving the EU would have it, is simply that we are then asking our firms to compete with firms in emerging markets 
who don't have to adhere to the same labor and environmental standards. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, many emerging markets have labor and environmental standards that we would find unacceptable. So quite UK. aside from the quality of the widgets, it's also how workers are treated and what damage to the environment you're allowed to... Exactly. So, you know, the fact that some firms in emerging markets can produce more cheaply is down to the fact that they don't need to adhere to 20, pays, 20 days paid holiday or maternity leave regulations, which are expensive, but which are important to UK workers. They also don't need to adhere, in many cases, to quite as stringent environmental protections, which, again, is part of our quality of life, being able to breathe clean air and drink clean water. So if we're going to ask our firms to adhere to those labor standards and those environmental standards, that's going to make it more difficult for them to compete with firms from emerging markets, and hence that's why we have this trade, this mechanism of tariffs. And of course, we don't yet know what the UK government um, itself would like to see in terms of a future relationship. That has not been made clear yet. Well, indeed. So there are people who are very supportive of Brexit have been quite split on exactly what it is they want out of Brexit. So on the one hand, we have free market proponents of Brexit that would like to see us outside the single market and who would like to do something like unilateral free trade mm -hmm. and who I suspect would be quite comfortable with a regulatory race to the bottom mm -hmm. that would end up eroding our labor and environmental standards. Mm -hmm. Now, on the other side, there are many proponents of Brexit who wouldn't be comfortable with that kind of a, of a world in which labor standards are eroded in particular. Now, on the other hand, if we were to go with um, many people who think that staying in the single market is the best option, then the UK still is facing a quite a difficult choice in the sense that, yes, staying in the, in the single market is probably the best we could do in trade and economic terms whilst leaving the EU, but it would still expose us to this issue of no longer having a say mm -hmm. in future UK or, sorry, EU regulations. So in 2018, the UK is faced with two challenges. First of all, it needs to decide what kind of a Brexit it actually wants. Finally. Finally. <laughs> and then, once the UK has decided what Brexit should ideally look like, once it's managed to square that circle, then the big task ahead is convincing the rest of the EU and the Commission that this is indeed what they should want as well. And that's, again, coming back to the beginning, the Commission has been quite clear, their position is Canada or Norway, and that's actually a pretty coherent position, so we'll, the UK will have to work quite hard um, to find some ground in the middle of that that could be acceptable to the rest of Europe. The work starts here, but <laughs> this podcast has to end here. So thank you very much, Monique Bell. We'll be back with another Look Ahead 2018 next week, and you can find the whole series, plus other podcasts, blogs, and publications on our website on www.niesr.ac.uk. Goodbye. <laughs>